It is not a terribly long chapter, but we are going to cover the entirety of the chapter. So I would invite you to follow along as I read aloud Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through the end of the chapter. God speaks. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a certain, lame, a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms for those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, Why do you marvel at this, or why do you look so intently at us, as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and killed the Prince of Life whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did your rulers, But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began." For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear the prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are the sons of the prophets. And the covenant which God made with our father, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Lord, help us now as we consider this your word. 
We are hopeless and helpless with the wisdom of ourselves, but Lord, through you, through your word and the Holy Spirit that gives us understanding, can we change to be more like your dear son? And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen. People are transformed into joyful worshipers because of the name of Jesus. People are transformed into joyful worshipers because of the name of Jesus. We see that illustrated beautifully in this passage. Now remember where we are in the context. We've just come off Acts 2, which is this tremendous highlight of of the history of what God is doing. There were these miraculous events that were given to authenticate the message of the apostles. Pentecost had happened. Uh, there There were people speaking in other languages that they had not learned. And there were these cloven tongues of fire that came to rest on the followers of Jesus. And this great work produced a a conversion of about 3,000 people in one day. So this this small band of followers of Jesus, about 120, explodes into this this group of of over 3,000, and then the text tells us that people are continuing to be converted. Have you ever been to uh, an event or or a circumstance that was just a, a tremendous time of spiritual refreshing? I remember going as a young person to, to summer camp. And at summer camp, you, 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 at, at Christian camp, you get to spend time with, with counselors who, who love the Lord and with other young people from around the, around the country, and you, and you get to hear solid preaching. So you'll go in the morning to your chapel time, and then you'll have a time of devotions, and then you'll have a, an individual time with your counselor, and then in the, the evening sessions you'll hear, hear good Bible preaching, and, and it'll be just such a little revival in your own heart. You just... You're just making decisions and you're determined to follow after the Lord. And it's, it's almost like you get to the end of the week, you're like, can't we just stay here? Like, it's so nice here. You know, it's, it's uh, encouraging. We're, we're spending time in God's Word. I'm, I'm just ready to stay here. Let's just camp out here forever. I mean, Peter had had a circumstance like that in his life, hadn't he? Right? They go to this mountaintop and there's the transfiguration and they see the glory of Jesus unveiled and, 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 and what does Peter say at the end of that experience? Hey, let's build three tabernacles. Like, let's build three tents. Let's just kind of stay here for a while. Let's just bask in the glory of what has just happened. I dare say that coming off of Acts chapter 2, there's a similar temptation on the part of the church. I, I mean, if I were in this circumstance, I'd be like, well, this is great. I mean, this, 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 all that happened in Acts 2 and Pentecost, let's just... Let's just huddle together and just enjoy good Christian fellowship. But what you see happening in the following chapters is not that they stay huddled together in their own group, but that they go out into the world and they propagate this message of the good news of Jesus. And Acts 3 begins that for us. Now we're going to see that all throughout the book of Acts, but starting in Acts 3 and going forward, this this message continues to spread and it goes out further and further. And so, we see here in Acts 3 the first event of that kind of evangelism taking place. And of course, as we mentioned in our introduction to Acts, we're going to see this over and over again. What we see in this text is that people are transformed into joyful worshipers because of Jesus' name. Now, we see it illustrated in verses 1 through 12, and then we see it explained in verses 12 through the end of the chapter. 
So let's look first at the illustration of someone transformed into a joyful worshiper. Well, uh, we already read it together. Verse 1, you have these Jewish apostles that it says, go up to the temple at the hour of prayer. Now keep in mind that at this point, uh, Christianity had not broken away from formal Judaism. Right? It was still considered a, a sect within Judaism. It was still considered a part of Judaism. Now, these, these faithful apostles, being, being Jews, would, were still following the traditions of the temple. And so, here at about 3 o'clock, it's called the ninth hour in the text, about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, they go up for their daily prayers to, to the temple. So, Peter and John go together. These are characters that we're going to see again and again, and it says that there was this, this man in verse 2 who had a, a congenital um, disorder with his, with his feet, and because of it was crippled. He'd been crippled from birth, so we see him helplessly begging. Apparently, he had to be carried there each day by some group of friends who would set him in front of this gate called Beautiful, and, and most historians surmise that this is probably the Corinthian gate, which was, which was a magnificent work of precious stones. It was extremely ornate. And so here you have this backdrop of this beautiful, opulent, lavish gate with this poor, cripple beggar sitting in front of it. Now, because giving alms was part of the Jewish tradition, it was a, a religious act for Jews, this was probably a good place to camp out. In fact, he had been doing it for, for decades now, since, since birth he had been crippled. And, and, and after the healing takes place, what everybody says, hey, isn't that the guy, right? That, that we, we see him every day at the temple, so apparently he had been there day after day for quite some time, sitting in front of this this beautiful gate. We, we read together that Peter and, uh, and John come up to the temple. They see this man. And in verse 6, <clears throat> Peter says to him, he says, first of all, verse 5, look at me. And of course, probably at that point, the beggars, oh, I'm going to get something. I'm going to receive something. And, and Peter says, silver and gold I do not have. I don't have any money, right? That's like the life verse of some Christians, right? Silver and gold, I, I got none, right? I have no money. Well, at that point, the beggar's probably thinking, well, this is disappointing. But he goes, he's not done. He says, what I do have, I give to you. Now, now there's a por- an important lesson in there, isn't it? I mean, Peter, Peter is not able to, to give him uh, a, a, a physical riches, but he does give him what he can. He does help him in the way that he can. That's a lesson for all of us. There's, we can't always do what we want to do, but we can do what we can do. He says in verse 6, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, why is this so significant? And in fact, in fact the, whole, the whole passage really revolves around this notion of, of th- this is about Jesus. This is done in the name of Jesus. What is so significant about in the name of Jesus Christ? We'll see this motif in, in the name of Jesus Christ throughout the book of Acts. We see it carry on even into the epistles that the, that the name of Jesus Christ is significant. In fact, even, even when you hear Christians pray, you will often hear, often hear them pray in the name of Jesus Christ, right? 
well, why is that important? What does that even, even mean? Well, when I tell you certain names, an entire body of information comes to your mind, right? If I say a famous person's name, like Arnold Schwarzenegger or Jeff Bezos, right, or Abraham Lincoln, you, Jeff Bezos is the CEO of Amazon. Somebody getting a look, who's that? Um, all right, so uh, this, this entire body of information comes to, comes to your mind about, uh, about who this person is, all that they represent, all that is, it is attached to him. I think most of us, Abraham Lincoln, that's a pretty safe one, right? Um, and some of them, you don't even have to say their whole name, right? I mean, I could say things like JFK or Elvis or Oprah. I mean, I don't even have to say the whole name. And you know there's this, this entire set of information. There's this entire persona that is wrapped up in the name. That's the significance of in someone's name. It, it goes a little further than that. See, I, I fear that sometimes Christians think that in the name of Jesus Christ is kind, kind of like this little magical incantation that we, that we say. And, and that's not what it means. It encompasses all of who Jesus is. It's not just a spell that we pronounce because the name encompasses who he is and it evokes his authority in his power. Right? So you remember when you were a little kid and you were playing cops and robbers and you'd come around the corner and your brother is trying to get away and you say, stop in the name of the law. Right? What do you mean by that? You mean by the authority of the law. I am, I'm giving you an order, but it's not on my authority. And of course, your brother runs right by you because he knows that you really don't have authority. Right? Um, I recently had the chance to do a wedding. And it's stuck so far. We're good. Um, and so somewhere at the end of that ceremony, uh, I, I say the words, by the authority invested in me by the state of Texas, and as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I now pronounce you man and wife. What are we saying? By the authority invested in me by the state. The state has, in its set of laws, delegated this authority to ordain ministers to pronounce a couple married. That is what we mean when we're talking about doing something in the name of someone else. So Peter attaches these very significant words to the healing that he is about to execute. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. It's important for us to recognize this. Because what we do is all in the name of Jesus Christ. As we minister the gospel to other people, as we help other people, as we love and care for and, and, and minister to and teach other people. We're doing it not, not really because of us. It's not really about us, and Peter's going to expand on this in his message, but it is really about, about Jesus. The focus for Peter was where it ought to be on Jesus in whose name, by whose authority he does it. So then what happens? Well, verse 7 tells us there is a healing and please notice in verse 7, he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And what's the next word? He took him by the, verse 7, he took him by the right hand and he lifted him up. And what? Immediately. 
Now, this is actually an interesting word because it's not used elsewhere in the New Testament. Um, there is this, immediately, this immediate healing. And so Luke then kind of puts on his, um, his doctor hat, right? You remember Luke was a physician. And there's a string of several words here that are, that are unique to Luke. In fact, they're unique to this passage. They're not used anywhere else. So the word that is translated received, strength, is actually used in the medical literature of, of that day. The word feet, that are translated feet and ankle bones, not used anywhere else in the New Testament. Right? Luke is, is hearkening to his, his training, his learning, his understanding, and in so doing, he's making clear that the actual internal structures of this, this man's feet, the, 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 mal, the malformed bones in his ankles were repaired and immediately strengthened by this miracle. It's interesting that Luke's perspective as a physician who, who gives us this kind of detail about the healing uh, itself. Well, so he was immediately healed, and of course, as, as we would expect, someone who has been, been lame from birth, who now has the ability to, to walk, to jump, to run, is ecstatic, and it says he goes his way, what? Walking and leaping and praising God. So clearly he was, he was very, very joyful. He was leaping, he was running, he was, he was rejoicing. And, and notice then it says that he, he was leaping and praising God. I'm in the last part of verse 8. The praise went not to, to Peter... Now, obviously, he has a very strong loyalty to Peter and John. We're going to see that here in the next verse. But, but the glory, the praise, went to God. And in so doing, we see a testimony that is provided to others. Verse 9. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And then they knew it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate. Right? I mean, these are, these are faithful Jews. They pass that way every day as they went to, to their prayer. And they had seen day after day for years this man who was unable to help himself sitting in front of this beautiful gate. We don't have a lot of homeless people in Round Rock, but we do have a few. And if you spend much time in the downtown area, you kind of figured out who they are. Right? You, you recognize them. You, you know them. You, you see them just kind of around town. Well, that would have been very similar to these Jews who would have passed by this man every day. They would have been like, I don't know the guy's name, but isn't he the one that always sits by the temple gate? This guy has been there for years. He's been lame from birth, and they recognize that God has done a great work. And so, so what happens? Well, there's this group that gathered together in the last part of verse 10. They're filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. And then in verse 11, all the people in the middle of the verse, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which was called Solomon. So Solomon's porch here, this kind of court of the Gentiles where people would gather together. This is also likely the place where a lot of church meetings took place. Right? This would have been a public gathering place. They, they flock together because they see this one who is, who is attached now to Peter and John, in fact, the word, it, it, it says um, 
that uh, in verse 11, that uh, the man who was healed held on to Peter and John. That same word is used elsewhere in the Greek text for arrested. When, when they grab onto someone to arrest them, it's the same word. So he, he, he clings on to Peter and John. He, he, he's, he's so thankful for what has happened that he, he kind of attaches himself to them. The people see it. The people recognize that this is a great work of God. And they come together. All of this provides a testimony of God's goodness, His healing, and it authenticates the message that the apostles are giving. Remember, we've hit this before, that that the miracles that we see in the book of Acts are given to demonstrate the truth of what the apostles are saying, which is interesting because the first 10 verses of the passage tell us about the miracle, but but the majority, probably two-thirds of this chapter is what? Peter explaining the significance, the importance, the spiritual truths that are being illustrated there. We'll get to that in just a moment. This man provides a testimony by praising God. He had been transformed into a worshiper from a beggar who sat outside the place of worship to one who is now rejoicing, who is is apparently going to worship with Peter and John, praising God. And what an illustration that is. When we, when we come by faith and repentance to Christ and are made new, there is a healing that takes place spiritually. There is a joy that is, is unleashed in the life. If you're with us during our discipleship hour, we've been reminding you of the importance of sharing the gospel with others. And in that context, we have challenged you to, to really develop a good way of giving your testimony. That is to say, think through how you explain the transformation that God has done in your life. Some of you, just a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, were in rebellion against God. You were lost in your sin. And God reached down and through, through various circumstances in different lives, worked in you to draw you to himself. You yielded to that, you repented of your sin, you trusted in Jesus Christ, and now God is doing a work in you. And those who are around you see that testimony. They see that transformation that has taken place. There are a few things more powerful in witnessing to the gospel than your own testimony. Your salvation is a testimony to, the, to others. It is a demonstration of what God does in the life. I wonder, I wonder how often do you share with other people the reason for the hope that is in you, the reason that you have been changed. It's not because of you, but it's because of the work that God has done. Don't hesitate to share your story of God's work in your life. Don't be, don't be slow to tell others uh, of, the, of the wonderful things that God has done in saving you. And then I would say this also, there, there is a tendency on all our part for that, that joy to diminish, right? I mean, this guy's jumping around, he's leaping, he's praising God, and next week he's, he's still pretty excited about it, and what about the following week, and the week after that, and the week after that? Don't we all, don't we all tend towards this complacency? May we often come back like this, this man and remind ourselves of where we were, and where we are now through God's grace. 
May we be people who are, who are transformed into worshipers and perpetual worshipers that go on praising God day after day, not losing the joy of being saved. So we see in the first part of this chapter, there's a physical healing that provides an illustration of, of, those, of what those who carry the gospel, right? Peter and John, who those who carry the gospel do and the result was that there was a, a joyful worshiper because of Jesus' name. Now, these people gathered together, and Peter, who, who is not one to miss an opportunity to preach the gospel, then takes advantage of the fact that there's this gathering crowd. And verse 12, he says, When Peter saw it, he responded to the people. Now, Peter is just a chapter <clears throat> later, a chapter after uh, the message uh, at Pentecost is now preaching another message about the hope of Jesus Christ. So this transformation is then explained. He starts off by telling him what the source of power is. You remember that when he healed this man, he said, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. So, verse 12, he goes on to, to link Jesus to the one who they all believe in, the God of Israel. Why do you marvel? Why do you look so intently? Verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus. So in verse 12, he makes this reference that is, that is to the servant of the Lord. Now, if you've ever studied the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, you'll know that this is Isaiah's favorite designation for Messiah, for, for the anointed one who will come to save Israel. And so by talking about this servant, we could even capitalize servant, talking about this one, this, this, this person who will redeem Israel, Peter is now linking Jesus Christ with the promise of the prophets, particularly the promise given by Isaiah. He was the only one who could redeem his people, according to Isaiah 53. And in fact, his reference here is an exact reference to Isaiah 52:13, where this very vocabulary that Peter uses in our text was used in the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so Peter is making reference here to the prophet. He's saying, this is the one. This, this Jesus, he's the servant that Isaiah foretold. Again, Peter is pointing back to the power. It's not us. Why, he says in verse 12, do you look at us like as if we have done this? We haven't done this. The one who deserves the glory is, is Jesus Christ. He is pointing to this miracle being sourced in the name of Jesus Christ. So it's important for us to be thankful for our spiritual influences. You have spiritual influences in your life. You have people that you can look to as those who, who shared the gospel with you when you were still unregenerate. Those that you can then point to that have, have instructed you in the way, perhaps even the person who had the privilege of, of, of seeing you come to faith in Christ, the person that, as we like to say, led you to Christ. Right? That's a spiritual influence. Perhaps there's other people throughout your life that have been, have been helpful to you to, to learn from, to teach you, to, to invest in you, the ones who have discipled you. And you look to them with thanksgiving. 
That's appropriate, and that's right. Clearly, this man was extremely thankful to Peter and John. But, but let's not confuse Christ's servants with Christ. I always get amused sometimes after someone gets saved. You know, they haven't learned all the churchy lingo yet, right? right? And so they're, they're, they're wanting to say something, and they say, you know, so-and-so saved me. And we'll lovingly chuckle and correct them. No, I didn't save you. Jesus saved you. I just had the privilege of leading you to the Savior. Now, it's important for us to remember that. Because all we are is the Lord's servants. We are the the tools in the Master's hand that, that God uses to direct someone, to influence someone, to help someone. But ultimately, it's not about me. Same goes for you as you look to the spirit, those that were spiritually formative for you. Be thankful for them, but recognize that they are the ones that God used to influence you. So Peter is clear about the source of his power in verses 12 and the first part of verse 13. And then he goes on to explain to Israel their own rebellion. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. And now there's a turn. Peter is going to indict them. In the last part of verse 13, he says, Whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate and and was determined to let him go. So he hearkens back to this crucifixion account where, where Pilate, you'll remember, put up before them Barabbas and Jesus, expecting them to want Jesus released. But the crowd turned on Jesus and they they cried out, crucify him. The the Jewish nation as a whole rejected the servant who Isaiah foretold. And so Peter makes the point that he says, you denied, in verse uh, 14, the Holy One and asked for a murderer to be released to you. And then he says this in verse 15. And killed the prince of life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. Now, there's this twist here. There's this irony that Peter points out, because you killed the the prince of life. Now, there's a lot in there, right? Because he refers to Jesus, first of all, as the prince, or or we could actually translate that the the author of life. This word that is translated here, prince, or in some of your translations, author, occurs four times in the New Testament. In Hebrews, he is referred to as the the author, same word, of of salvation. Uh, In Hebrews 12, as the author of our faith and in Acts as the, the author, of, author of salvation. And then it's used here as well, that's the fourth. All of these references portray the Lord Jesus as the originator, the source of, the fountainhead of salvation. And so there's this, there's this striking paradox that Peter makes, makes the point of, you have killed the author of life. But his death, secured life for all who will believe. And that is Peter's message throughout the rest of this text. 
And so in verse 15, you've killed the, the prince, the author of life, but, but because he was the author of life, he could not stay dead. God raised him from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And so because of that, in verse 16, his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. Okay, this is the one. This author of life whom you as a, as a, as a nation have killed and who has raised from the dead this same power has made this once lame man strong. And so then he makes application to his audience. We'll come back to the rest of verse 15 in just a moment. Um, he challenges them with this spiritual healing that has taken place through Christ. He, he makes application to them to repent and believe. Notice with me verse 16. In His name, through faith in His name. Now, we've already seen Jesus' name invoked, but now Peter gets even more specific. He talks about faith in His name. And then notice a couple lines later, yes, faith which comes through Him has given Him this perfect soundness. And so, He then reminds them that they have rejected Him, rejected this Christ um, unwittingly through ignorance, and then the, the message of what they are to do. So what, Peter? So what are we to do? Well, verse 19 marries that idea of faith with repentance. Verse 19, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. We see this often in Scripture where the idea of faith and repentance are wedded together. They're, they're kind of two sides of the same coin. So let me explain just very quickly. He, he is challenging them to depend on the one, to believe in the one, to exercise faith in the one whom they have rejected. And that is done through repentance, which is the opposite side of the coin. That is the, the turning from sin and self. I was wrong. I was I am sinful, I am depending on self, I must turn from that to depend on what is true, on what is right, on the one in whom I can depend, who I can trust, that is Jesus Christ, the Savior. And so he challenges them, this Messiah who they have rejected, who has been put off by the nation of Israel. And in fact, if you're an Israelite, you're sitting there listening to this message and, and you have this logical question. If this is the Messiah, if this is the one who has been promised, if, if this is the one who is going to save Israel, where's the kingdom? Right? Because there's all of these promises about the kingdom. Where is this messianic kingdom? And so Peter answers that in verse 19. Israel must repent before the kingdom will be established. Repent, therefore, he says, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Israel must repent that they will see these times of refreshing. If you go down to verse 20 and 21, you see the same theme reiterated, and he refers there to the restoration of all things, these times of restoration, times of refreshing. 
By the way, if, if you just, uh, one quick sidebar here in verses 20 and 21, that he may send Jesus Christ whom he preached. Um, verse 21, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration. Okay, so if the times of restoration are this, this future restoration, i.e. The, the kingdom, the, the, the full implementation of the kingdom, we would call that the, the millennial reign of Christ, yet to come, heaven will, watch this verse 20, part, first, of 21, first part of 21, heaven must receive him until that time. So Jesus will be where until the millennial kingdom? In heaven. Okay, this is, this is a sidebar, but, but does this verse allow for any kind of second appearance in America after his ascension, as a certain cult teaches? Just kind of a sidebar there. That's free. You don't even have to pay extra for that. Right? Verse 21 doesn't allow for such uh, an appearance. He goes to heaven, and he will be there until the millennial, the millennial reign. So, back to Peter's point here in verses 19 and following. Their conversion would bring about spiritual refreshing. These times of refreshing refer to the national blessing when Christ is recognized as Israel's king, uh, the messianic kingdom, we would call that the millennial, the reign of Christ. Now, how does this apply for us? Well, it's true that for Israel, in the ultimate sense, blessings will be unleashed when they repent and turn to him. Through repentance and faith, times of refreshing come. And so one day, we know, Israel will, as a nation, as a whole, turn to Christ as their Savior. They will repent, and they will be restored in the Millennial Kingdom. But in the meantime, this message is still true for each person individually, is it not? The message of repentance and faith is at the very heart of the Gospel. That when one turns from sin and self to depend on Jesus Christ, that is when spiritual refreshment, spiritual restoration comes. And so this gospel for Israel is the gospel that we see fleshed out and is given in a few chapters later in the book of Acts, is given to, to all the peoples of the earth. This is the gospel. That Jesus Christ, the promised one, has provided payment for our sin. You see, you and I are separated from God from birth by sin. Sin is simply doing that which is against the character of God, doing what we ought not do and not doing what we ought to do. And every one of us are sinners. You are a sinner, I am a sinner. Every one of us are guilty before God. And in fact, because of that, we are separated from God. That separation from God is not just in this life, but it is even in the life to come for all eternity in a terrible place called hell. That's what you and I deserve because of our sin. But Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, came from heaven to earth, and He paid for our sins by dying on our behalf. I mean, this is how the chapter ends, right? The very end of, chap uh, of chapter 3. To you first, God, having raised up His servant Jesus, sent Him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. And so this message, this good news that is given to Israel, who at the time of Peter's preaching is rejecting it, 
is the same good news that is given to you and I today. To turn us from our iniquity, to, to save us from our sin is why Jesus Christ came. And so how do we appropriate that? How do we access that forgiveness? Well, we've seen it here already in this chapter, have we not? Faith and repentance. And that is exactly what is continually taught throughout the remainder of the New Testament as well. When we, when we depend completely on Jesus Christ and in so doing turn from our way, from our sin, this is faith and this is repentance. When we turn from our sin and self to depend completely on Jesus Christ, He makes us new. He forgives our sin and He puts us in right relationship with God. And so I would ask you this morning by application, have you ever done that? This message of the gospel continues to be the message that we need to hear today. Have you ever had a time where you have recognized the, the inadequacy of your own way? That your, your religious deeds, your good works, will, will never merit you standing before God. They will never be good enough to earn God's favor. Have you ever come to the point in your life where you've rec- you have abandoned your own way, you've repented of your sin and self, and depended completely on Jesus Christ. My friend, if you've never done that, please make today the day that you turn from your sin and self and depend on Christ. Anyone who is a member of North Hills would be happy to sit down with you to share with you from the Bible how you can know that your sins are forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ, to answer any questions you have, and to help you to place your faith in Christ according to the Scriptures. Will you repent and believe? That's the invitation that Peter gives to to these people of Israel who are standing before him. The power is not in us, he essentially says. It's, It's not about us, it's about Jesus, the one whom you must believe, the one who you must put your faith in. Repent and be converted, in verse 19, that your sins may be blotted out. And so the invitation is given to Peter's hearers to become true worshipers, like this man who had just been healed, to to be converted, to be changed, to be made new, and to be turned into appropriate worshipers of God. But the same message holds true for us, that you and I must turn to Christ. This message of faith and repentance is important for us to hear, because it is the only way that we can access God. And then, my Christian friend, if you, there has been a time where you have depended on Jesus Christ, you've been converted, each day we live in the light of this faith and repentance. We live in the, in the reality that we are, are repenting people, people dependent on Him, trusting in Him. This is the message that doesn't stop when one gets saved. It continues all throughout the life of walking with Christ. And so then... Peter, in verses 22 and 20 through 24, references Moses. He, he references Deuteronomy 18. In fact, you may have that in italics in your Bible or set off in some way to indicate that it's a quotation because Moses warns the people. He warns them of this very day when they will be tempted to, to put off, to reject the prophet that will come. And in verse 23, the impending Uh, doom that comes by rejecting God's servant. We find these prophecies then all throughout the Old Testament, and then he kind of brings it home in verses 25 and 26. He says, you are the sons of the prophets. 
You're the sons of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now he says in verse 25, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant. He actually, it's emphatic in the Greek. You, um, uh, pronouns are unnecessary in Greek. And so when the pronoun is added, it's added for emphasis. It's like us kind of underlining it. It's like, you are the sons of the covenant. The Lord's promise to Abraham was not just, just a vague promise of prosperity, but as Paul would argue in Galatians, it was a specific prophecy of the messianic king, the Lord Jesus Christ. So these children of the prophets, these children of the promise, were called upon to recognize the Messiah to turn from themselves, from their dependence, to repent and believe in Him. And in so doing, they would be made into joyful worshipers, just like this lame man who was standing there listening to the message illustrated. People are transformed into joyful worshipers because of Jesus' name. And that is the message that you and I bear as we give the gospel to others. As we go out even this week and we share the truth of what God has done in our own life like this beggar did, like this crippled man did, as we provide that testimony, we are now worshipers and we're calling others to be true worshipers of God. Do you see the relationship between evangelism, missions, giving the gospel, and worship? I read a book a number of years ago and there are certain statements that you read in a book that just make you stop in your tracks, and you just can't go any further until you digest that statement. This one book that I read, the opening paragraph of the book was like that. And some of you will recognize this quote um, by John Piper. Missions exists because worship does not. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is, tempor is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Missions exists because worship does not. Here's a man who was healed and became a worshiper. And now Peter stands up and challenges all those within his hearing to submit, to bow the knee, to humble themselves, to repent before this Jesus who is God in the flesh and who is worthy of worship and to become a joyful worshiper because of Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to worship you as we've done as we've gathered this morning. We thank you also for the privilege that it is to challenge others to be worshipers as well. I pray, Lord, even this morning as we think about the importance of giving the gospel to others, as we think about spreading the good news of Jesus Christ, that we would be reminded of the great work that has been done in us through Jesus Christ.